Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. That's a big hit. That's going all the way. Robert Sandals comes to the pick. That's on the roof. Welcome back to the Top Edge podcast for another week. Uh, the cricket has been a disaster. Australia's out of the World Cup. What's the point of even doing this anymore? But seriously, we're, we're returning after, uh, uh, well, one of the best games of the World Cup, I'd say. The Netherlands have just beaten South Africa in, well, they, they defended what was a, now what I thought was a good total, but not a total that I thought was going to win against Africa. But their bowlers in the middle there, they just, uh, they just destroyed them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Glover in particular was a big difference maker, getting those two wickets in the one over of, you know, two very important batters in um, in the uh, South African lineup. You know, Parnell's kind of the bowling all-rounder and um, obviously got David Miller, who's known as the finisher. So if your finish is gone, then you can't really finish, can you? Um, and that's ultimately how it, how it panned out. Yeah, I think they just got the selections wrong there in South Africa, not picking the extra spinner. Uh, I think uh, the Dutch would have not liked to have faced that spin, but uh, it is what it is. South Africa out of the World Cup as well as Australia now. Um, just some updates before we get into the actual episode. Virat Kohli's uh, hotel saga is over. They found out what was going on. There were some uh, cleaning contractors that have been let go after you know, getting access to the room. I guess these things will happen more and more often. Um, and the other thing that happened this week, I finally got on the park for some cricket yesterday, and uh, it went worse than the Australians uh the worst than the Australians in the World Cup. Uh, I've made like five with the bat, batting at number three, maybe six, something like that. The grass was way too long. Couldn't, you know, get it off the square. Uh, and then went for like 30 off two overs with the ball. So, yeah, things are not going great. Oh, you know, it's... um. It's because it's because you've been um you haven't had the uh, start to the season that you expected. You know, it was weather affected. You can you can you can bounce back. You know, um, decent decent five. I'm sure it was good partnership, and um, <laughs> you know, um, they were just uh they happened to be seeing you quite well that day. But that's fine. You know, you know, um, look at it this way. It can only get better, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I could have got another duck, but uh, yeah, five. Um, they, yeah, they just had one batter that I think he made like 85 out of the total of 125. So, yeah, when you've got one player that's just that much better than everyone else in the team, you've got to be asking questions about if they're playing the right grade. Um, but someone else who's making, well, coming back to Australia is Andre Russell. He signed on with the Renegades uh, as the replacement player for Lee Livingston. I think he's going to play the first four games before he heads off to, I think, South Africa and the UAE as well. Um, look. A predictable signing, really. You know, Andre Russell, big name, all that kind of thing. He's probably passed his best, though. And we've seen in the World Cup, there's some very good players already in Australia that uh, probably could have done the job just as well. With Sakanda Raza or, you know, some of the Irish guys or, you know, even some of the guys from Sri Lanka or something like that. There's, there's talent around. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, look, I think they went with Russell because everyone was quite shocked they didn't get taken in the draft. And, you know... Like you said, there is a lot of talent around, but they're probably not as marketable talent as Andre Russell is. So that's ultimately the choice they made, especially in replacing Livingston, who's one of the most must-see T20 players in the world. So, you know, that's um, the circumstance of what happened. And, um, you know, he's going to look at it as as an opportunity and, um, you know, he'll want to have a big performance with the bat, particularly um, in order for the next BBL draft for him to assure that he gets he gets one of those spots without being a replacement player. 
I think more than that, it's so he can get his name in the IPL draft and, and make some bigger dollars there. If he, you know, puts in four good performances, it could be a million bucks heading his way. And uh, good on him. That's what that's what the game's there for. Uh, before we get into the actual stuff, though, make sure to follow the podcast on socials at the Top Edge Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and leave it a review. And if you're in the 15% of people that listen to this podcast that are from Germany, uh, write in and let us know why you're listening from Germany because you're not really a big cricket uh, like a, a cricket knowledge country. I'd like to know why that's happening. Uh, a little bit odd, but that's what the analytics say. Uh, we'll move on to the World Cup, though. Uh, we'll start with where the semifinals are going to be. So Sydney and Adelaide are hosting those when it looks like India will play, be playing in that Adelaide semifinal uh, against England. And then, well, I've got here down South Africa. We're going to play New Zealand. That's not going to be the case anymore. It's going to be someone else against New Zealand because South Africa are, are gone. It's either going to be Bangladesh or Pakistan, whoever wins that game. Uh, we'll get through. So yeah, I guess it looks like it, it will be Pakistan. So we'll end up on the on the three for four, which is even better than the, than the two for four we were looking at last week. But um, yeah, it was yeah. I mean, you know, I'm still I'm still like processing and reacting to the South Africa Netherlands <laughs> results. Um, you know, that whole game was kind of wild. But yeah, now um, Bangladesh and Pakistan, you know, they're going to go in there and they're going to look at it as a huge opportunity and. Well, it's even bigger. It's probably more on stake for Bangladesh, even though you know Pakistan will want to get through, mm. um, because if Bangladesh win, they get they guarantee qualification to the next World Cup, True. Um, because they move ahead of the Netherlands, who currently, if if Pakistan win, then the Netherlands will automatically get through to the World Cup. So there's extra intrigue there to it. Mm. So that'll be an interesting one to see in terms of how it plays out and um, what happens in group in group two. Yeah, the, the Netherlands qualifying automatically is super important because that would mean that both Scotland and Ireland could also get through to the World Cup next time around because there's only two spots in Europe. Uh, if the Netherlands don't automatically qualify, you're looking at only two of those three teams getting through. And, you know, that's just going to be disappointing for whatever country misses out there. Their uh, development will certainly go downhill as a result. Uh, the other one, that if Zimbabwe wins, they could also get into that top four, which would make things interesting. That would mean there'd be a different qualifier from Africa as well. So we might see Namibia and who knows, Kenya, Uganda, could be any of those countries get through, which would be a lot of fun. Uh, we'll go through the big matches of, uh, that have happened this week. The first one was England beating New Zealand. That was important for Australia, but uh, England got the job done, winning by 20 runs there. England, have, you know, they've really started to put the foot down and they're, they're looking pretty good, I think. Uh, Butler was 73 from 47 and then 52 to Hales as well as that opening partnership that really won on the game. And then the Kiwi pace bowler struggled, which was odd. You know, Southie and Bolt are meant to be the, you know, they're, they're really, you know, the best opening bowling partnership in the world, probably. And they they all went for more than 10 and over, including Ferguson. It was the spinners in Sodi and Santner that kept things pretty tight. I think they went for six and over between them. But the issue was Kane Williamson again. So he hit 40, which is good. You know, you want captain hitting runs, but from 40 balls, when you're chase, chasing a relatively big total, is it's just not good enough. Yeah, especially when, you know, you see Phillips in the form and he's batting after Williamson. You may shuffle the order around, you know. Um, I know it's because of injury, but England have been moving down Mallon and that's worked because Mallon's been playing a bit slower. Um, so, you know, I feel like maybe maybe there's something something there to move Kane down the order a bit just so one of those bigger hitters can come in. Um What's interesting, and um, I don't know if there's stats to back this up, but whenever a wicket goes down quickly in New Zealand's middle order, 
uh, Jimmy Neesham gets out also right after <laughs> um, when that wicket goes down. So I don't know, maybe bringing in Neesham at three is a, is a thing to look at as the big hitter just to, because he usually goes out there and he's swinging first ball. So, you know, that might be, might be a way to go because if he connects with one and then you'll get more confident and then they can score more quickly. But yeah, you're right. It is too slow. Um, it was a good effort, but yeah, um, England looked really good in that game. Um, their openers were really strong. And, um, you know, they, they have quite a deep batting lineup, England, and we definitely noticed that in their, uh, their last result. So um, they're going to be dangerous moving forward and, you know, they're, they're going to continue playing with that chip on their shoulder after losing to Ireland. Yeah, definitely. I think Nisham's an interesting one. I don't think he should be uh, anywhere near this team anymore. He, well, no surprises there, but uh, his high score is 48 in T20i cricket, you know, from 45 innings. He's had plenty of opportunity Averages 25. You know, he's known as this big hitter that comes in towards the end, but he doesn't really do it that often. You know, his top score in this World Cup is 26. Admittedly, at a strike rate of 200 uh, against Australia, but by then the, the total was already pretty large as it is. Not really a lot of pressure. And he's not really bowling anymore either. Um, and, you know, he's meant to be a, an all-rounder who comes in a bowl, a little bit like Marcus Stoinis, right? Uh, and it just hasn't quite worked. So I might, I think they should probably move on from him uh, looking towards the next World Cup. And I think Kane will probably be done before the next World Cup as well. I don't see them both sticking around. Uh, the other upset, though, was the Dutch beating Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwe looked, they looked cooked. Uh, they had plenty of riding on this game. You know, if they won this, they would still be in contention for semifinals. And knowing the result of South Africa today, they would be riding contention. You know, they just need to win this last game and they'd be there. Uh, but, you know, they posted something like 117 all out, just not enough runs. And, you know, the Dutch haven't batted brilliantly until today against South Africa, but even then, you know, Max O'Dowd hit a half century and, and the game was pretty much over. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting, that one. Um, I remember seeing Zimbabwe's total and I go, because I wasn't particularly, I, was watching, I wasn't watching that one live, so I was just kind of following it. And I was like, oh, it must be maybe a bit of a bowler's wicket because I'd have expected Zimbabwe to have made more than that. And then it got chased down pretty easily. And I was like, oh, oh, they must have capitulated. And then, you know, that was obviously the case looking at the scorecard. Um, so, yeah, it's disappointing for them because it was a huge opportunity. And, um, you know, we could be talking about Zimbabwe going through with India in that group, and that would be pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but that didn't pan out. But, you know, they'll still be looking to bring bring back momentum. And I feel like if they beat India, then they'll they'll feel they'll feel even more confident going into their the next World Cup and they'll feel like they ought to have qualified. So, you know, that'll kind of kind of ride with them for a little while as we move forward. But yeah, you know, um, credit to the Netherlands, you know, they, they've been bowling well all tournament and, you know, they, they did it again um, in Zimbabwe and um, they did it against South Africa, obviously. Um, so yeah, they, um, you mentioned with the smaller teams or the, the lesser market teams, I suppose, um, that they have, their bowling is similar quality to the major teams bowling. And I think this tournament's just confirmed that. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a gap between uh, the best bowlers in the world, uh, the best batters in the world and the, those other associate nations batters, but the, the bowlers could really play anywhere. And I think that's the Netherlands have been the prime example of that. Their bowlers have been excellent. It's just about getting the, the batting together, which, which will come. It just takes a little bit longer. Um, the other one to look at Australia beat Afghanistan by four runs, not enough obviously, to get through an on-net run rate. Um, pretty disappointing, really. Uh, not a great performance. M Mitch Marsh, 45, and then a half-century to Glenn Maxwell, finally getting some form together. Uh, Afghanistan looks on track. You know, they started really well with the bat. 
And then there was this weird period in the middle there where they lost four wickets for four runs, started by a Glenn Maxwell run out. And then Rashid Khan came in at the end and looked like he could, like no one would ever get him out. The, the shots he was playing were ridiculous. Uh, plenty of like tennis swaps from above his head out to mid wicket. And, uh, you know, Australia just had enough of a buffer there from the, those middle overs where I think they scored maybe 16 runs in five overs. You know, it really, it did grind to a halt there, but uh, Australia managed to just get the job done, although not really enough. So kind of a, a win in vain. Yeah, I mean, Australia looked, even though they put up a decent total, even though, they, yeah, they won the game, they just never looked sure throughout the whole the whole time. It was only in those middle orders, and it was purely because of Maxwell. Like, Maxwell's on a different planet to everyone else on that team. You know, he doesn't care what the situation is or anything. He's always going to go at 100%, and he's always going to, you know, do what he can to win the game. But, yeah, some of the body language of the different players, um, you know, got shuffled around a bit, I guess, to try and mitigate that a little bit. Um it didn't quite work because, yeah, winning by Afghanistan, winning against Afghanistan by just four runs, probably isn't really good enough, you know. Um, especially considering you wanted the higher net run rate, so you know you'd have wanted to have won by at least thirty, yeah. or you know chased a low score if if that ended up being how that innings panned out. But yeah, you know, it's still a win. It's still a win, so it's still a little bit of um, momentum to take into um, you know moving along into the summer. And, uh, you know, the other series that Australia have coming on. And, um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of indicative of a period of change in Australian limited overs cricket. Definitely. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the other thing to note, of course, was that Aaron Finch was out. Uh, Tim David was out. And also Mitchell Stark was out. Uh, Stark for, I don't know, um, tactical reasons. The other two with the hamstring injuries. Cameron Green coming to the top of the order. I know he you know, hit that 50 in India, right, and hit some good runs in India. But apart from that, you know, once he's come back to Australia, he hasn't really done much with the bat. And then with the ball, you know, two overs for 13 is pretty good, but it's not really, you know, that's not, not what he's there to do, right? He's there to open and, and hit big at the start and it didn't work. Um, Steve Smith came in four or four, didn't look great, and then got hit on the pads, um, which is not good for the summer. You know, if Steve Smith's getting hit on the pads, that's um, a, a show that he's out of form, I would suggest. Uh, and then Marcus Stoinis, again, slow. Hit two sixes, which puts the strike rate up. But apart from that, not really a lot going on. And Matthew Wade, uh, with the pressure of captaincy, didn't manage to get the finishing done as he should do most of the time. So uh, pretty disappointing stuff, really, all around there. Mitch Stark going out was the odd one for me, though. I would have thought Pat Cummins would go out. Like We've been pushing for that for a couple of weeks. Um, and they decided to go with the only bowler that does something a little bit different. You know, Pat Cummins and Hazelwood, I've said before, do the same kind of thing, you know, hit back of a length at good pace. But Mitch Stark has the ability to, to swing the ball early and, uh, you know, get through people with pace. And and it just, I don't know, Andrew McDonald decided that's not the way they wanted to go. Yeah, it's odd that they dropped Stark and it's odd that they dropped Stark for Kane Richardson because mm-hmm. he doesn't bring anything particularly different or unusual i mean sure he's quite an accomplished limited overs player that's understandable very underrated i think a lot of people don't rate kane richardson but uh i think he's he's pretty good right yeah he's solid you know he he can he can change up his lengths i mean he's not as fast as stark but no one is um and uh yeah no he's he's he looks like he's a good guy to have around the team as well he seems like a good morale kind of guy um but yeah, it just seemed like such an odd choice with the way the tournament had panned out, um, especially with Cummins's form and that sort of thing. Um, I'd have thought, especially considering that you wanted to, you know, either put up a big total or, you know, 
bold M for a low total. Um, you'd have wanted Stark in there because, you know, he kind of really responds to the situations. And if the batting ever gets down to him, he's usually pretty good there too. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting choice and um, probably, you know, in retrospect didn't quite pan out. But I think it was a case of the coach, you know, trying different things and being like, look, I don't think England are going to lose, so I don't think yeah. we're going to get through. So let's try these players and see what happens in this kind of this kind of setting. Um, so he knows now. Um, so um, maybe he'll rotate back around when it comes to the next T20 series. But yeah, it was um, it was kind of it felt like a negative change, which um, yeah, you, you don't really want to see when you're still theoretically in the tournament. It felt defensive in a game where they needed to be really aggressive. And you only needed to look back to the Ireland game, the game literally before this for Australia, where Mitchell Stark ripped through the top order of Ireland. And, uh, you know, Pat Cummins didn't really do the same thing. Um, so, yeah, an odd decision, but one that didn't work. Uh, the last one to look at is England beating Sri Lanka. That was the game that made sure that Australia wouldn't make the finals. Uh, Four-wicket win, win uh, a little bit closer than... You know, it looked like it was going to be from the start of the match. Uh, Sri Lanka posted a decent total, but England, uh, you know, they're too good, right? Their batters are ridiculously good. The bad news is Mark Wood seems to have picked up some kind of an injury, although he did finish uh, a couple of overs after it, so it can't be too bad. His pace was a little bit down, though. Uh, but Dawood Milan is also out. He's, I think he's actually out probably for the rest of the tournament as well. Um, with a groin injury, he picked that up in the field. So not some good news, but England do sail through to the finals. Yep, yep. It was, um, you know, whenever England need a big performance, Ben Stokes comes and performs, and Ben Stokes came and performed, and it happened, and they got their win. Um, they were a bit shaky towards those last few overs, um, which I suppose shows that their arm armor, and I suppose you know the island result as well, shows that their armor is penetrable. And um, India, in particular, will be looking at that and kind of you know licking their lips and rubbing their hands together and going, "Oh, okay, this is going to be good. This is a good opportunity to to show how dominant we are." And um, yeah, that's going to be a really good game, a really interesting semi-final. And um, yeah, you know, um, Sri Lanka were were pretty good. Um, they, you know, with Partham Nasanka. Um, kind of carrying the innings through with a couple of, you know, bit performances in between. And um, I thought they bowled better this um, mm. this particular match than they had through most of the tournament. Um, you know, we talked about how they're kind of a one bowler team, but um, Kumara came in and bowled some death overs and bowled pretty well. Um, Dunanjaya De Silva bowled pretty well as well, um, you know, as that um, batting all-rounder they've got. Um, so, you know, they've got they've got bits and pieces. And, you know, I think Sri Lanka on their day can beat any team. And, um, you know, they're going to they're gonna hope that they get some more series going, going forward, you know, next year, some more series wins, and then they'll maybe be a bit more of a serious contender when it comes to the next one. Yeah, well, they won the Asia Cup a couple of months ago, right? So they're, they're a very good team. The conditions obviously didn't help them all that much, although their pace bowlers, uh, you know, they're probably one of the best emerging side, like, sides in terms of pace bowling. They've got you know, like guys coming through the bowl, really good pace. Obviously, Malinga's there as their bowling coach, and uh, he knows how to bowl quite well in Australia. He did it for a long time in the Big Bash, and also uh, Sri Lanka seemed to tour every second year in white ball cricket here. So... Yeah, uh, they've got plenty to learn still, but one that's definitely on the rise and I think will definitely challenge in the West Indies and the USA on pitches that will probably suit them a little bit more, especially in the West Indies. I'll move on to the the elephant in the room, though, and that's been the weather. It's been better this week. There's no doubt about that. Less rain, 
Uh, going to Adelaide, it's been a little bit warmer. But I wanted to f- highlight one game, and there's not going to be no surprise what game that is. That's India and Bangladesh. Uh, so India posted 184. It's pretty big. Like, they won by five runs in the end. Uh, it, it, the scorecard reads closer than it was in the end, really. It, Bangladesh didn't look like winning it towards the end. But at the start, they did. So Lita Das came out and smashed 60. Uh, and then the rain came, and it was not light rain. It was some of the heaviest rain you're going to see in Adelaide. And uh, for some reason, I don't know what it was, maybe a little bit of pressure applied, the, uh, the players got back on, even though it was still raining quite a lot. The covers came on while it was still raining, which is not how cricket is meant to be played. Uh, just an, just a very odd one, and it's helped India get through to the finals. Yeah. I mean, it's disappointing as well because India didn't need it. You know, yeah. they, they'd have probably still found a way to one. They're that kind of team. Um, but, yeah, I guess I guess I feel like part of it is tournament officials felt under pressure because, you know, of the amount of no results they've had because of the weather and that sort of thing. So like, well, we're not going to let the weather um, spoil this one. And, um, you know, that's they, they went back out. It didn't look the safest for the batting team or for the fielding team, to be perfectly honest. Um, but they went back out. They finished the match. Um, no one looked seriously hurt. So that's good. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I feel like it was an ill-advised decision. They could have just waited a bit longer. It looked just as wet if not wetter than the South Africa-Zimbabwe game at the start of the tournament. That was also called off for rain, and they shared the points there. So, yeah, it's it's an odd one. You know, Bangladesh would have picked up the two points, and they'd probably already be through to the semifinals at this point if that was if that game was called off when it was. But it wasn't, and, and that's kind of how it goes. You know, India has this extra power with the ICC, and, and maybe that was flexed a little bit there. Um, a little bit of other Indian news, though. The Zimbabwe game for later today as we record has been completely sold out of the MCG. So there's going to be 100,000 people in Melbourne watching a game that features Zimbabwe. That's uh, that's pretty massive, really. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, you'd think, you know, maybe 90% of that crowd is there to cheer India on. But, Probably you know, it's still, it's still really good. And it's yeah. still um, great to see, you know, these stadiums. You know, we were quite worried about attendances in the early, uh, early mm-hmm. periods of the uh, World Cup. So it's good to see that there's still big attendances. And that's kind of, you know... It's kind of why it's important that India perform well because they bring a lot of attendance, they bring a lot of eyes, a lot of viewers and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it's going to be really good. It's probably going to be the biggest spectacle Zimbabwe have ever played in and they're going to hope to put a really good account of themselves. And I think they will. I think it's going to be a really good game. Yeah, no, I think Zimbabwe in for a good chance. You know, that's a very big round, the MCG, where sixes won't play as big of a part. And uh, if you can keep India from scoring sixes, you can definitely keep the total down and then chase it. Um, but yeah, definitely the biggest spectrum Zimbabwe would have would have played in, that's for sure. Um, just what do we think of the competition overall, though? I think it's it's definitely been the best one of the best T20 tournament we've seen ever. You know, the the results have been unpredictable, which is always good. Every team's been in it most of the way, and uh, once you get out, like the competition overall with the group stage is not great. But the the games now in the Super 12s have been probably the best we've seen in a long time with a decent uh, bat v ball contest. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you reflect on, you know, the Super 12 group stage plus and you feel like, oh, there just weren't quite enough games, that's a sign that it was really good. That's a sign that it was really good quality. And, you know, that that's kind of the line you want to set. You want to have enough games so that people stay interested and stay engaged, but you don't want to have too many. And I think that's that that worked out really well. And, um, yeah, it's been really high quality cricket, like you mentioned, um, really good um 
just really good to see the influence of the bowlers and the uh, the different tactics that different teams are employing. Because I found different teams have been using different tactics and they've all kind of worked to some extent, which I think is good. And I think gives variety to T20 cricket that maybe wasn't there before. So that's, that's really good. Um, it's been a really good tournament in terms of uh, just exposure of different players as well mm. you know seeing seeing the younger Sri Lanka team like you mentioned and uh, seeing some of the the new Indian players who who've played a lot in India but haven't played so much overseas um, so yeah it's been really exciting really good and um, hopefully the semi-finals are just as good good of quality which I think they will be looking at the teams that'll probably go through I think they will be yeah I think the big bash has a lot to learn from this tournament regarding um, you know, a man of games in, in time of in the time of the tournament. You can have more than one game on a day. Uh, that will be fine. People will still watch. Uh, we'll move on, though, to, well, a little bit closer to home. Australia's fallout from this World Cup and what it means going forward into the next, you know, next cycle before the next World Cup. Uh, so what happens next for, Australian, for the Australian team? They're obviously, you know, the focus is going to be Test cricket now and ODI cricket before the next World Cup that's next year. This will be a World Cup every year at the moment. Um, but... Yeah, I think T20 cricket is going to definitely take a take a back seat for a little while. Yeah, for now, especially considering we weren't very successful in this tournament. Yeah. So I could understand it taking a back seat, you know, besides the BBL. That's obviously going to have some focus and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're going to they're going to just kind of put it in the back pocket for a bit and focus on test cricket, which I like the test team and I like um I like the way um, Australia is looking at different different options for the test team as well. You know, I think I think they've noticed that they're in a period of transition in terms of which players go where and that sort of thing. And I hope that they experiment a little bit with those different teams because I think they do need to, and I think they need to um, kind of, you know, try some players here or there for two or three tests or you know two or three ODIs and just mm-hmm. see how they work and see if that's maybe an option that they want to look at moving forward. Because Australia are big into finding players and developing them. So if you find the players and they play a bit and they look good at international level, you know, you think about uh, what they wanted to do with Pukowski, for example. Mm. Um, That's probably a pretty good example of, you know, how they want to develop a player and that sort of thing. So we'll have to see how that goes moving forward. And um, I'll be very interested to see what the the squads are when the South Africa series um, gets announced. Yeah, absolutely. That. The Australian team is, you know, there's Warner, Kawaja, Smith, Carey, uh, Cummins is just under 30, but Stark, Hazelwood and Lyon, they're all on the wrong side of 30 at this point. So you need to be bringing through players that can replace them in the, possibly in the short term. Um, We don't know how long like David Warner's got left or even Steve Smith or, um, you know, injuries happen to fast bowlers all the time. So there definitely needs to be people coming in. Even if we look back to the the replacements last year in, in the, uh, test matches, you know, you had Scott Boland play. He's on the wrong side of 30. Michael Ness is quite old as well. Um, only like Jai Richardson's one of the younger guys coming through. So there's there's players that need to come in that are younger. Um, but it, it was pretty clear from from the World Cup there that Australia didn't really deserve to get through, right? There was, you know, a big loss for New Zealand to start things off, uh, especially at home. You know, the SCG is not good enough. And then to, you know, win by four runs against Afghanistan is, is too close. Even like not beating Ireland by enough, you know, Lorcan Tucker taking down the back end of that game. Australia just, you know, they didn't look like one of the top four teams, probably not even maybe the top six teams really. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. They just weren't up to standard. They started on a, on a poor note and it got a little bit better, but just not, not 
it wasn't the big bounce back that you wanted. And, you know, ultimately, yeah, they, they got what they deserved, which was knocked out in the group stage. So, well, group stage plus, um, but um, yeah, it was, um, it was a disappointing tournament, but, you know, it's important when you look at tournaments like this and results like those um, that you take lessons from them and that you think, okay, so maybe these things didn't work. We need to shift that around. Okay, maybe this selection didn't work. Maybe we need to change the order a bit, that sort of thing. I feel like, you know, you need to look at this result in the tournament and sure, they'll brush it aside for a bit in terms of, you know, the series that are coming up that aren't T20s, but they, they should have in the back of the mind, okay, things need to change. Things need to be a bit different because this didn't work and we need to show that we're still that elite level cricket, cricket nation and that, you know, it was it was a fluke. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the biggest issue for me, and one of the lessons that uh, cricket Australia is going to have to learn, is that we're not taking T Twenty cricket seriously enough in Australia. Like, if we look back to twenty fifteen in the ODI World Cup year, every game was sold out, right? Every, like crowds went to every game, especially Australian games. You know, only eighteen thousand to an Australian game in Adelaide Oval. That's just not good enough. And part of that is on cricket Australia not not educating the public enough about T Twenty cricket. You know, the Big Bash is kind of a I don't know, do you call it a joke um, in terms of, you know, it's it's bright colours, it's a, a party atmosphere is what they're going for, where T20 cricket is not that anymore. T20 cricket is the most analytical form of the game. It's the one that uh, countries take the most seriously outside of Australia. You know, they, they put big dollars into this, you know. Uh, India is investing literally billions of dollars into the IPL and into South Africa and into the Caribbean and into the UAE now. Uh, if you want to keep up with that, you really have to to bring the people along with you, um, including the players who are also not taking T20 cricket as seriously um, to if if they want to really compete in 2024. Because that gap, as we've seen in women's cricket, if you don't invest early, that gap is only going to grow bigger and bigger as time goes on. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a culture shift in Australia are about five to seven years behind where they ought to be. Yeah. I think that's the situation. And, you know, I think they can catch up. They just need to you know, Cricket Australia need to learn how to market T20 better um, when it comes to the domestic leagues. I mean, it can still be fun. It can still be marketable to children and that sort of yeah. thing. But there needs to be more serious commentary, I'd say. A lot of the commentary, they're not even talking about the game that's going on or anything yeah. like that. So that's an issue. Um, you got to take domestic T20 cricket seriously. And, um, you know, you need to show, oh, this young player you know, comes from this club and they're actually really talented and they average this and that and that sort of thing. And you don't get enough information about the players, which makes people not as invested. So, you know, there needs to be, they need to probably look at the IPL and how that's developed and how that's built in popularity and probably go, okay, what do they do that's made it so popular and that's made it build in popularity as it's gone along and that sort of thing. And maybe try and apply, obviously not the same as the IPL because it's just a whole different spectacle, but try and apply some of the lessons learned from that particular series and some of the lessons learned from the past hundred, which was quite good yeah. um, as to how to market T20 cricket better in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. The good news is that there's some players taking it seriously and that's the younger guys coming through because they see, like Tim David has done, there's millions and millions of dollars to be made if you do it rightly. You know, Hayden Kerr, Josh Phillippe, uh, even Thomas Kelly, he had a good half century with South Australia the other day. Max Bryan and Wes Agar, the two guys from the Renegades, Fraser McGurk and uh, Mackenzie Harvey, they look very good. And then Ollie Davies and, and Sanger, at, well, both Sangers really at the Thunder. They're, um, they're really, you know, they're the next generation of BBL stars. And we saw a lot of them really take that next step up last season. And I think, you know, Hayden Kerr went to the 100. He put his hand up for the uh, IPL. 
these players are only going to get better as they play more cricket. And, and that's where this next, you know, next cycle of players is going to come from. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's exciting. You know, there's a lot of young players and they're all like 25 or younger, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, so yeah, that there's, there is definitely a promising future there. It's just a matter of knowing how to invest in it properly, knowing how to develop the players properly and knowing how to make it, how to make playing for Australia a commodity again, because nowadays it's kind of just been like, you know, it's more of a fraternity. Oh yeah. You know, Finch is going to play and Smith's going to play and that sort of thing. And it's become a culture of, you know, just kind of expectation rather than a culture of, you know, being selected on merit and that sort of thing. I'm not saying that some of these players haven't been, you know, really good and they have been really important in the past and they have put on good performances. That's obviously justified their selection, but you know, it's at a point of changing and it's at a point of, you know, if you're looking at, a 25-year-old and a 35-year-old who average about the same in domestic T20 cricket, why would you not give the 25-year-old a go just to see how it works? Um, I know it's it's a different standard, but, you know, the gap's closing. These young players play with international players all the time, Mm. elite-level international players because, you know, the imports and the different T20 leagues. And, you know, with Kerr, like you mentioned, playing in England and playing in in the the IPL, you know, it's just all going to be more exposure and more more kind of opportunities taken at that domestic level to push them towards the international level. Yeah. And I think part of it is also the, the, the back of house stuff that cricket Australia is doing. They're not, you know, the, the analytics departments of cricket Australia aren't looking at T20 cricket the same way as other countries are. And that's why, you know, a Tim David can slip through the cracks and get all the way to the IPL and make, what was it? $2 million in that contract. And he's not played for Australia or even really been on the radar for Australia at that point. Um, the same with like Hayden Kerr and, and even Josh Phillippe. Uh, he got picked up in the IPL, played a bunch of games for RCB alongside like Coley and, and these big players. And Australia's not really looking at Phillippe. They've got Inglis in as that second keeper. Um, there's talk about Alex Carey before Phillippe coming in. These guys are they're clearly talented and they play important roles. And, and roles are really where the, the T20 cricket's going to move to. Who's the best at, at what point of the game rather than just, you know, pick Pat Cummins because he's the best. Uh, most accurate bowler during test cricket. You know, it's, it's not the same thing. But you mentioned Aaron Finch uh, and these players of the past. Do you think the Finch and, and Wade are both done? You know, we're going to move on from, from both the captains from this tournament now because it seems like Finch is he's not going to make it another two years, right? And Matthew Wade, there's other keepers coming through. Philippi, as we said, he's also the, pretty much the same age as, as Finch there. And, you know, he's dropped off a little bit in the last few games, but he's had a good 12 months overall. But I think... Uh, it's not quite going to last another two years. Yeah, look, I think Finch is probably going to start wrapping things up from here. Um, I mean, I don't know what's going through his head and I don't know what his decision-making is. He'll play, he'll play the BBL for a while, I think, because he, like, he enjoys playing the BBL. Yeah. And, um, you know, you've seen a lot of Australian domestic players play domestic leagues for a while after their international careers. So his career is by no means over, but maybe his international career is winding up and that's okay. You know, that happens. That's the natural cycle of, you know, a cricket player's career. Um, With Wade, I feel like he still wants to be, you know, kind of a marquee Australian player. That's kind of been his goal throughout his career. And he's kind of been in the team and out the team and that sort of thing. And in all the different formats. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if he'll be able to, you know, keep up that standard like you said he's not a young man anymore um a lot of his game is based on his you know physical athletic gifts so he'll start losing those as he gets a bit older um but i think he'll still be around in two years whether he's around in the team is a different question yeah 
Yeah, I think there's a backup keeper position there for him if, if that's what he's after. But yeah, I think he's, his keeping's not as good as other other weak keepers around the country. Uh, he does a weird role for Australia. You know, he bats number seven for Australia, where if he's playing for the Hurricanes, he'll open the batting. Uh, when he was playing for Gujarat in the IPL, he was also opening the batting. But yet he comes to Australia for, what do they play, 10 games a year um, outside of World Cup seasons. And, you know, then he bats number seven. It's not really a role that he practices. And yet he gets given it for Australia. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I, as I said before, roles are important. You want to consistent roles. You want to know which players bowling which over beforehand um, pretty much most of the time, unless something terribly goes wrong. But if Finch is out, the captaincy has to go somewhere. Um, you know, Glenn Maxwell's there. Alex Carey's being talked about bringing him in. He's obviously going to share the white ball captaincy or the ODI captaincy with Pat Cummins. And then Pat Cummins is the other one that's, uh, you know, being put up as the captain, but, I don't see how that happens. You know, he's he's barely in the team as it is. Yeah, I mean, we've said for a long time that we think Maxwell's ready for a leadership role. And I think in terms of T20, that's the ultimate opportunity yep. because he, his, his appointment as captain would mark the change of the culture of T20 cricket. And I think that would be really important and that would accelerate, you know, Australia's development in terms of T20 and that sort of thing. Um you know, moving up to the other nations like India and England and that sort of thing. Um, that won't necessarily happen. Um, I don't really know, you know, what the conversations are around captaincy. I can only know through my speculation and through, you know, the different channels I follow and subscribe to and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think Maxwell would be the best choice. Um, and he doesn't even need to be captain for very long and just be a year or two or even. And then by, by then, one of the younger players would have hopefully been quite established and shown leadership qualities. And you can bring one of them in, you know, players who, who perform at domestic level and who show, who fill a role really well, like you mentioned, um, that could be, that could be the way to move forward. But yeah, I mean, if they go with Kerry, I, I would understand that's fine. That's an okay choice in my opinion. You know, yeah. it, I feel bad for Alex Carey. Every time we talk about him in respect to captaincy and that sort of thing, he's always our sort of second well, choice. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> always talk him down, but you know, his T20 numbers are pretty good. He's a good T20 batter, right? His T20 numbers are good. He's a great um, fit for the Australian team. Um, you know, a good presence to have around confident, very good keeper, yeah. which, you know, I feel like we forget about a lot of the times he's probably the best Australian keeper right now. And, um, yeah, you know, he, we always look at him as the second option, but maybe if we give him the T20 captaincy, then he'll show us why we should have looked at him as the first. Yeah, the other option, of course, is David Warner. Um, he'd have to have that captaincy ban lifted. Uh, it looks like he's going to go through the process to have that lifted. That could take, you know, up to a year, possibly. He's obviously not going to captain this big bash. That's kind of the idea. This is why he wanted the captaincy lifted, so he could go play in the big bash. Uh, they offered him a bunch of money instead to go do that. So that's why he's playing. But if he wants to captain the Big Bash next year, he's going to have to have that sorted. Uh, and then, you know, there's a, there's a year gap where he can't be captain. And the other thing, of course, is that he's 36 now. Next World Cup is in two and a half years' time, basically. That would make him almost 39, um, a little bit too old for captaincy, in my opinion. Um, the other one to look at is Steve, the Steve Smith question. Um, he came in for that last game, obviously, but... Clearly not the kind of T20 player that Australia is looking for anymore. You know, they're looking for big hitters in the middle order, Stoinis, Maxwell, David, um, Wade even. And then Inglis is the other other keeping option. They're all really big hitters, clear the rope kind of thing. 
uh, and the anchor rollers seemed to disappear in T20 cricket. And when it was being played, it was being played by Aaron Finch. So, yeah, the Steve Smith question, you know, he's not getting any younger, either 34 now, so he'll be 36 by the time the next T20 World Cup comes around. Uh, I think it's better for him to just focus on test cricket at this point and really become the best since Bradman in test cricket. You know, he has that opportunity. If he puts a few few more hundreds on the board, he'll, he'll no doubt be there. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think Smith and Australia probably look at it in terms of, you know, he, he broke onto the scene as a T20 player initially, um, but he also broke onto the scene as a bowler. Yeah, He's a batter right. now. He only bats. And, you know, he was a good T20 bowler, actually, when he, when he was younger and he played that role and that sort of thing. But that's not what he does anymore. He bats and he fields. He's a very good fielder. He's a very good batter. Yeah. But he focuses on batting for a long time and building in innings and he's a slower player. And that's okay because when he gets those really good shots, they're some of the best-looking shots in all of cricket. It's the same with Williamson, you know? Yeah. They're, they're both really talented, really good batsmen, but they like to go at their own pace, in T20, you know, I think I think what Marcus Stoinis said um, was quite quite apt in that, you know, good batting doesn't matter so much as good slogging. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I know that's a bit of a a bit of a uh, I don't know if it's a negative way to look at it, but it's um it's definitely the way that format of the game is going, and that's just not something Smith does. Smith's not a power player. Williamson is not a power player. They're both, you know excellence of execution technique kind of guys and that the format for those guys is test cricket or sometimes ODIs you know Smith's been a very good ODI player as well mm-hmm. so I agree with you I think focusing more towards test cricket um, is the way to go for Smith especially in terms of cementing his legacy and um, you know trying to kind of push away all that happened in Sandpaper Gate and the captaincy and the ban and all that I think yeah. if he you know scores another six or seven test hundreds, then we'll forget about that and more just think about, wow, he was this amazing test player. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, where Williamson has, has done best is in the IPL and what he does there is open the batting. And I think opening the batting provides you a little bit more time to play that kind of innings. Where if you're coming in at four, like Steve Smith does, he's probably coming in, what, at best the sixth over. That's going to be the most time, sometimes the tenth, sometimes later. It's just not enough time to be able to push the ball around like that. We'll move on to someone else in that team, and that's Tim David. So a lot of the speculation beforehand was that you know they can't get Tim David in. Uh, he wants to play franchise comps. But now the question is going to be, how do they hold on to Tim David? How do they keep him in the side and keep him playing for Australia regularly rather than playing in you know the IPL and the CPL and in England? His, yeah, his calendar over the next two years is pretty full, really, for T20 cricket, um, and yet he's got a somehow play for Australia as well. I, I'm not sure how they fit him in. My suggestion is to get him a central contract, a big one, and have him play ODI cricket as well. Because if you look at his numbers, he averages 85 in, in list A cricket uh, at a health, very healthy strike rate. And admittedly, some of that is playing for Singapore where they're not playing against great opposition. But he also had some very good seasons in England playing for Surrey. Uh, and I think if they want to keep him around, that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. I also think with Tim David is, um, you know, they need to build some team psychology around him. He's kind of just been a feature, whereas he should be a focal point. He's that kind of player. He's that kind of talent. And I think that will probably help in terms of his confidence. So his performance and his confidence and that sort of thing. And it'll just help with the overall structure of the uh, 
Australia limited over setup. So I think your suggestion is really good. Um, maybe playing some some more one day cricket. It doesn't even have to be in Australia. Just more one day cricket in general will maybe help that out as well. Um, but it's also a matter of what his ambitions are. You know, if he wants to just be this globe trotting franchise player who you know gets big contracts wherever he goes, then power to him. He'll probably make more money that way than if he's an Australian player. Mm-hmm. But if he wants to, you know, if he wants to have more of a legacy, like a uh, an international player legacy and that sort of thing, then maybe he'll consider that a more viable option playing for Australia a bit more. And um, yeah, it'll just be very interesting to see how it goes. Tim David's kind of a kind of a new breed of player, and um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he's handled and um, how he approaches it all. Yeah, your point about the focal making him a focal point of the team is really important. And I think I think he's basically the new Glenn Maxwell, right? Comes in the middle overs and smashes the ball. That's what kids like to see. Um, and you should market around that. And I think, you know, he's only been there for six months or something in the Australian team. So give him some time. Maybe that happened. He's also not the same kind of personality as, as a Glenn Maxwell. I don't think he's seeking out the limelight in the same kind of way. Uh, we'll move on, though, to predicting the 2024 World Cup team. Uh, do you want to go first on this one? Oh, um, all right. Um, Green, Philippi. I think mm-hmm. they're going to be opening. Yeah, I, I got think they'll be really Really good. Um, number three. Um, maybe Maxwell at three. I'd maybe go with Maxwell at three. Yeah, yeah he'd be okay. Um, David at four. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Inglis is in the team and batting at five. So maybe Inglis, put him in there. Um, and then who are good middle over batters? Hmm. We'll skip over them for now, <laughs> and we'll go to the bowlers. Um, I think if Stark is still healthy, Stark will still be playing. Yep. Um, I think Jai Richardson will be in there. Um, I think Wes Agar will be in there. Yep. Um, I think he's he's a good talent to look at. And I think Zampa will still be going, so I think Zampa will be there too. So, yeah, there's just two spots in my team that I need to think about. <laughs> yeah, so I've got Philippi and Green opening, as you said. I said Ben McDermott at three. I think he's, you know, that basically number three is a third opener, right? And I think Ben McDermott's the, the guy to do that. Then Maxwell at four, uh, Tim David at five, Ollie Davies I've got at six. I think he's, you know, he's really coming through at the Thunder. They're playing in that six position already. Uh, and the role is important. Josh Inglis will keep. Um, I don't think Stark is going to make it in the next one just because uh, he does have a focus on test cricket. We've seen that from him not wanting to go travel around the world and play in the IPL and that kind of stuff. And for some reason, he was dropped in the last game. Uh, for tactical stuff. So he maybe they're moving away from him a little bit. So I've got Hayden Kerr coming in at number eight, also bowls left arm. So he provides that difference and hits the ball a very long way. So a little bit of extra batting. Nathan Ellis, who I think should have been in this this team now, will definitely be there in two years' time, especially in the Caribbean. He does very well in the CPL. Um, Jai Richardson will be there as well. And then Adam Zamper, I think, will probably stick around. Um, there's no reason to suggest he would go downhill. Um, some of the other ones I had, though, Tanvir Sanger will probably be the backup spinner. Uh, ben Dorsus as the left-arm uh, fast bowler is also pretty good, and Riley Merritt as the fast bowler's rocket. So, yeah, there's there's plenty of talent coming through, which is good. Uh, we'll move on to the WBBL, though. We'll get through this one nice and quick. An update on the table. We could just really insert last week's into this because it's exactly the same. Six scorches, Heathen Strikers up the top. A little bit of a gap, but the Hurricanes have played a couple less games. And then the Hurricanes, the Stars, the Thunder, and the Renegades. Uh, yeah, no changes at all, really. Yeah, nah. Um, it's been a little bit more competitive this week, I think, which is good. 
Um, you know, we've seen the Stars get a win, which is pretty, pretty good for them um, and seen kind of what they're capable of in terms of the talent they've got. Yeah. Um, and the Hurricanes are an interesting one. I reckon the Hurricanes are definitely still a chance to sneak into the finals, but it's just a matter of what team falls off. I guess the Heat would be the most likely team to fall off. But, you know, looking at how they've been playing as well, it's hard to see that, um, which is fine. You know, it's been it's been good. It's been good quality cricket. And, um, yep, hopefully hopefully now with the uh, World Cup starting to wind wind down, um, they'll get a little bit more exposure. That'll be the plan. Um, I'm not sure if you saw this, but at Lilac Hill, they had a dog show before the game started, which was very interesting around the outside of the ground. Um, that was that was a little bit odd. Um, yeah, so the top four, I think it's still pretty clear. I think those are the teams that you can get through. They're, they are a clear cut above the rest of them. Uh, but some of the best performances of the week, Alice Capsi finally getting on us and balls, hit 49 from 31. Unlucky not to get to the half century there. And then in the same game, Bridget Patterson made 41 from just 23, uh, as well as four for 24 from Sasha Maloney. So that was a really good game there between the Stars and the Strikers. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a really good game. Um, probably probably the one the one to mark. If you're going to you know watch one game a week, that would be the one you want to watch because, yeah, lots of great hitting, um, some some fun tactical choices in terms of, you know, switching up bowlers, putting spinners in, putting in part-timers even. And it was um, very interesting to see how it panned out. And uh, yeah, really good batting performances. You know, um, Patterson's been been around for a little bit, but she's really picked it up this particular season. She's been really, really good. And yeah, it's, it's great to see Capsi perform. You know, she's she's still so young. You know, you, you often forget that because you've heard her name a lot. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, Alice Capsi, she's in the England team, that sort of thing. But yeah, she's still a teenager. She's so talented. She's pretty good at bowling as well. <laughs> so yeah, she, she's definitely the must-see in terms of uh, future um, cricketing talent. Um, men's or women's and um yeah it was good to see i get a get a good get a good score yeah forget wbbl uh, 08 caps is going to be good when it comes to wbbl 23 like she's uh she's going to be around for a long time um in the sixes win over the thunder ash gardner made 53 from 37 and then took 37 uh, 37 then took three wickets as well with the ball proving that she's just the best player in that team basically um, and then Adapadu for the Renegades, someone finally performing for Renegades, although they didn't win the game, uh, hit 75 and 59, you know, including two sixes. She's kind of come in as a replacement for Harmon Precourt and, and done it pretty well. Yeah, um, probably probably more than they would have asked of her. Um, she's done really well. She came in to open and um, she set herself, which is good, good to see, um, you know, what she can do in T20, as we've been talking about quite a bit this episode. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, when she really connects with the with the uh, the ball, you know, gets that sweet spot on the bat, it sounds amazing. And mm-hmm. she's she's really good, good clean striker of the ball, and put up that big seventy five. Kind of carried the Renegades innings and made the Renegades look really good in that game. So they they still ultimately lost, like you mentioned, but um, encouraging and also mm-hmm. encouraging. There were a couple of partnerships with her as well. Yeah, it's just unfortunate for her that she's like the only player from Sri Lanka that can really do that kind of thing. Um, the rest of her team's not really quite going through. And part of that's just the Sri Lanka Cricket Board doesn't have enough money to invest into women's cricket because uh, they barely got enough money to invest into men's cricket at the minute. Um, for the Heat, though, Grace Harrison and George Redmayne, no surprises there. 74 from Harris and then 64 from Redmayne uh, in their last game, just once again, just dominating the top of the order. Not really any surprises there. Uh, Elise Perry also made a 69, which is good. And then Beth Mooney finished on 99 for the Scorchers, just missing out on that 100 by the one run. She hit 14 boundaries on the way, though. So uh, nice quick scoring, which is always good to see. 
Yep. Um, it's good that Mooney's back in form as well because um, she actually wasn't doing all that great early on. And Perth was still good, which is something that you worry about. <laughs> um, I, I guess something you worry about if you're a fan of a different franchise like myself, for example. But um, yeah, no, it's, um, it was really, really good innings. Um, just great hitting, as you usually see from Mooney. And, um, you know, even in those games where she doesn't score all that well, she still looks really good. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know, um, it's like they say, um, form is temporary, class is permanent, and Beth Mooney's a class player. Absolutely. Uh, the ones to really highlight, though, so Tess Flintoff hit a half century off just 16 balls during the week. And then Laura Harris this morning did the same off 18 balls. So they are scoring at ridiculously quick rates. 16 balls is faster than any... Uh, Australian male has done it in T20I cricket, not in uh, in regular T20 cricket. I think there's a couple of quicker ones. I know Chris Gale has one of 12 balls when he played for the for the Renegades um, against the Strikers. He took down ooh, left armer Greg West, it was. And there's one for you. Um, and then there's also some more. And Yuvraj Singh, obviously, in that 2007 World Cup where he had six sixes, was also 12 balls. But 16 balls, that's uh, that's rapid, really. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. I remember, I remember seeing that that innings, and um, you know, um, they were in a bit of trouble, and Flintoff came out there and just went, "All right, um, I think her first two balls were dots," and then she started swinging, <laughs> and boy, did she start swinging! She didn't um, stop. Yeah, it was really, really good. Um, really impressive stuff. And I remember when she brought up the fifty commentators going, "Tess Flintoff, more like Freddie Flintoff." Ha 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 ha! I don't think Flintoff's ever had such an explosive innings, to be honest. So, um, she's a she's a Flintoff to herself, if you will. And um, yeah, it's um, it was really, really good. And it's great to see, you know, um, just these massive scores being scored so quickly because they can really turn the momentum of the game. And um, that is really exciting to see. Yeah, the, the best thing that Freddie Flintoff has done in T20 cricket was his Elvis impression when he was playing for the Heat. Um, so there's a couple of weeks of competition still to go. I think it ends at the end of November, which is good. It means they're going to get some exposure before, like after the World Cup finishes, obviously. Um, and it's moving on to better ground. So off to Melbourne next and Hobart. Um, there's also some games in Adelaide. Uh, the one that stood out to me, though, Nori Optibar in South Australia. That's Barossa country. So hopefully no one turns up too hungover. Yeah, um, maybe maybe they'll um, book those games early so they can hit the uh, the wineries and the vineyards um, afterwards. <laughs> Don't know how they'll schedule that one, but, you know, nice place to be. Nice place to be playing cricket. Yeah, absolutely. Um, has anyone really stood out to you in terms of, you know, there's a couple of spots left for Australian selection with uh, Rachel Haynes and Meg Lanning both out. For me, it's mostly been the players you would expect to have hit runs, right? You know, Grace Harris and, and Jordan Redmayne. Um, Tess Flintoff is one on the rise, but she's 19. I'm not quite sure she's ready for it as of yet. Um, but there's nothing, you know, there's no really, no real young guns coming through that are, are going to take those spots. And I think, I think it'll probably go to Perry uh, and probably Harris or, or Redmayne. Yeah, no, not yet. I mean, Sutherland's looked pretty solid as well. So that's another True. another option for them to look at. Um, yeah, Flintoff's good, um, but yeah, Flintoff's young, so they won't pull the trigger on her yet, and that's perfectly okay. I think it's good to develop her, you know, a bit more um, before throwing her in the deep end, which really is international cricket when you're playing for Australia. You're put under the microscope real closely. Um, and yeah, um, I think Patterson is maybe making making a... Uh, a bit of a petition to be selected as one of those middle over batters. Um, she's, I mean, not only has she had that good, that good performance that we highlighted earlier, but she's just been really good as that, as the steadying the ship, but still big hitting um, middle overs kind of batter. So 
I feel like that's a role that Australia could um, take advantage of and, you know, shift the order around with Haynes no longer there. Um, I reckon it's possibly possibly somewhere they could go. Patterson's 28, so she's not old. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she looks like a good team player, good fielder as well, which is um, definitely quite important. So I think that that's probably maybe a wild card in terms of selection, but I agree with you. I think they'll probably just go with Perry and, um, you know, shuffle around some spots in the squad, but ultimately go for a team that we've more or less seen before. Maybe give Wellington a go instead of King, see how yeah. that see how that pans out. But yeah, um, I think I think it's gonna be gonna be the usual suspects. Yep, and World Cup coming up in just a few months' time in South Africa. So yeah, I don't think they're gonna be wanting to change too much before that occurs. And hopefully Meg Lanning is back before that World Cup as well, because uh, she's gonna be massively important for Australia to win that. I'll move to six or out though. Everybody's favorite segment of the podcast, as I say every week. I'll kick things off with the first question. So uh, the semi-finals are pretty much locked in at this point. Last week, you said that South Africa was going to win the World Cup. Not going to happen now. So who do you think is going to win? India. <laughs> um, I'll expand on it a little bit. Um, so I said South Africa were going to win because they were the best-looking team, and then they looked a lot shaky afterwards. So I jinxed them. Um, I don't think I'm jinxing India here because I don't think they care what I say. Um, <laughs> so um, I think they're... They look like the strongest team remaining. You know, New Zealand lost to England and England were shaky against Sri Lanka. Um, India is the only team that's looked consistently good um, throughout the tournament. And um, they're going to have the equivalent of home home stadium support and that sort of thing. They're well acclimated. Lots of important players are in good form. They feel like the favourites now. Absolutely. Let's just hope they don't lose to Zimbabwe tonight and make you look a little bit silly. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that, to be honest. I think that would be great. <laughs> but yeah, I'd have no idea how to predict it then. Um, anyways, okay. So my first question is, with the T20 World Cup and, you know, you mentioned the MCG being sold out and, um, you know, we also talked about some of the other venues not being sold out, 19,000 for the Australian game, that sort of thing. Um do you think it's been an issue with marketing because it's not been an issue with the quality of the play or has it been an issue of the successes of the teams that are being played in different things? Or what do you think the the problem is there in terms of some massively marketable games and some just kind of fallen by the wayside? Yeah. And I think marketing has played a big part. There wasn't enough advertising towards Australians uh, before the tournament started, and even during the tournament, you know, uh, I was in Melbourne a week beforehand, even during, some of that group stage stuff. And there was pretty much nothing in the city. There were some posters around, but you're not seeing the advertising you need um, in order to sell tickets. The other big issue though, of course, is the prices of tickets. Um, You know, these MCG tickets, some of them are up to 400 or $500 at a time. Um, Things are pretty tight for a lot of people at the minute. Um, The economy's not going great, that kind of thing. So people need to to pick where they're spending their money a little bit more wisely and, and in spending it to go to the cricket when you can effectively watch it on TV for free in what is really good quality these days um, makes it you know, less of a reason to go. So there's, there's plenty of factors there, but I think marketing and uh, kind of leads into my question as well about, well, I'll just ask it. Um, how, do we, how do we make Australians and Australia take T20 cricket more seriously? Um, well, I think, you know, we touched on it earlier. I think the commentators being more serious about the various players that are playing um, and, you know, 
instead of reacting, oh, wow, what a shot, explaining yeah. why it was a good shot, why they made good contact, what the sweet spot on the bat is, what their, you know, positioning was like, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, analyzing techniques and that sort of thing. Um, I guess that's probably more because I like the technical aspect of cricket, but I think that's a good way to kind of, you know, sell. Okay, this is more than just, you know, big men hitting a ball hard, you know, that they've, they've got a technique, they've been working really hard and that sort of thing. And I think when you when you paint cricketers as athletes rather than as, you know, great dynamic stars, then, then I think that'll, that'll translate better because cricket's a sport. And um, if you market it as a sport, then it will probably hopefully grow. Yeah. I think the, the commentators have to take the audience with them a little bit. And rather than saying Pat Cummins is the fastest, most accurate bowler in the world, explain why he's the most fast, uh, why he's the fastest and most accurate bowler in the world. And in T20 cricket, that's uh you have to go even further, right? There's there's uh, models that predict a lot of what T20 cricket is. And, you know, Winvis shows up and the commentators just bullshit it the whole time and say, well, how can Australia have a 90% chance of winning? The game hasn't been played yet. That's not how the system works. Um, and then there's, you know, deeper numbers behind it. And I think baseball and basketball, have, they've taken their audience deeper into the game, right? Especially baseball, you know, that's heavily numbers driven and T20 cricket's similar. And I think that's kind of what the commentators have to do. Unfortunately, I'm not sure Mark Bohr is the man to do it for Fox Cricket. So maybe bring someone else in that can explain that a little bit better way. If it was horses, it'd be all over it. <laughs> yes, perhaps, perhaps. Um, anyway, that kind of leads to my um, my next question. of um, You've asked me a few times about Australian um, commentary and what I'd change and that sort of thing. Um, are there any names in your mind um, for this upcoming summer of cricket? Um, of who you would like to see um, commentate a bit more. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Mark War less. No, I think Mark War he has his place, but um, you know Adam Gilchrist is really good. Um, the the thing uh, and Ricky Ponting, but though, I think they need to bring those two together again. You know, when the Big Bash was at its peak, it was Gilchrist, Ponting, and Fleming in the box, and they were geniuses at it. Um, so I think you know the splitting of channels. They're having two commentary teams where you've got some people you don't know, like your James Brayshaw um, commentating, even though he's played cricket and that kind of thing. He's, he's a good broadcaster, but not really what cricket is anymore. Um, so, yeah, there's no one I really bring in, I don't think. I think it's just about having a, a better commentary uh, on someone, maybe shrinking it a little bit, actually, rather than having more people come in. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure you could bring in. There's, there's obviously good radio commentators, but that's a completely different job to, to do it on TV. Uh, last one from me. Glenn Maxwell said after that uh, after that win against Afghanistan, the Australian players are pretty tired from effectively too much cricket over the last year. How do you kind of reduce that burden on players, um, especially those who are playing basically all three formats? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think players on central contracts should look at Australian cricket as their priority. Um, so you know, globetrotting, gallivanting in different franchises maybe isn't in their best interest um, in that regard. But yeah, it's also been an issue of scheduling. As we mentioned, there's been like a thousand T20 matches in the last two years, which is insane. And um, it's, uh, yeah, um, you maybe need to examine the schedule and go, okay, maybe this particular series isn't all that necessary. We're not actually going to get that much eyes on it. So maybe we let that go, let players train, do whatever they want to do, spend time with their families. And um, that'll probably help with the fatigue aspect because, yeah, it is ultimately too much. You know, you're playing over, oh, I don't even know. 
just thousands and thousands of hours of cricket in a year, um, it would get to you. And um, I, it's obviously gotten to um, members of the Australian team. Yeah, I think they're just they just put on a T20 series at the end of a Test series or an ODI series, and it doesn't really make sense. Um, I look back to that, you know, the Pakistan Test series where they put a T20 on the end, just a singular T20. Yet Australia still had to fly out a bunch of like fly in a bunch of players in order to get that played. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it's a waste of everyone's time, really. Like if you want to have dedicated series and have dedicated series, don't just tack stuff onto the end so you can make a few dollars and and balance the books a little bit. Yeah, good call. Good call. All right. Um, my last question is. Nope, I've forgotten it again. Hold on. <laughs> Let me look through my notes again. Oh, yeah. Um, how would you, what would you, if you were a coach, what would you say to a captain in terms of what you want from them in a game? Because we spoke a lot about it last week, um, about the captains not performing and that sort of thing. Um what would you do as a coach to kind of either put them at ease or fire them up or what would, what, what's the right thing to say to a player like that? Well, yeah, I think we spoke about it last week and then every captain seemed to hit runs. You know, Aaron Finch did a player, a played a player of the match innings. Joss Butler did the same. And then even Temba Bavuma hit like 36 or 15 balls. So um, yeah, clearly we weren't on the pulse there, but um, yeah, I think the captains, you know, they're all the most experienced players, right? So they know what they have to do every time. There's not really much you can do to fire them up. Um, they just part of it's just providing safety, and that you, they know they've got their spot um, that they're safe in that team, and and they will perform eventually. All of them will do it. They're the best players in the team most of the time. So there's not much as a coach you can really do. Most of the coaching is that uh, an analysis stuff at the start of the game, giving the coaches all the information they uh, giving the captains all the information they need in order to make the right decisions on the field. And, and that's all you can really do is just keep them informed and, and and give them as much as you can before they go out. But once they're out there, most of it's, you know, that's the the uniqueness of cricket is that the captain's really in charge once the game starts. So, yeah, not much you can do when they're on the field. Uh, we'll move on to some other cricket news, mostly domestic stuff. Um, New South Wales played South Australia in a Shield game that, uh, that wrapped up. Curtis Patterson hit 100, so that's good. Um, obviously, he averages more than Bradman in Test cricket, 144. Um, but South Australia batted that out for a draw with a little bit of help from the rain. And then WA played Queensland in a more interesting game. It was incredibly low scoring. Um, 56 for Kawadra and Nessa in what was a pretty good first innings from Queensland, considering the pitch, which at the Wacker looks very green for some reason. Um, four wickets to Jai Richardson, which is always good. And then six to Mark Steckety uh, following up. Queensland then bowled out for 97. Um, with Lance Morris taking four for 26. He's a very good up-and-coming fast bowler. But WA chased it down with Aaron Hardy making 70 to get to the total of 196. Aaron Hardy also another good all-rounder that WA's producing. You know, they've got Stoinis, Marsh, uh, Green, and now Hardy. There's probably some other ones. Hilton Cartwright's there as well. Um, heaps of good fast bowling all-rounders. Yeah, they love an all-rounder in WA. Um, I guess it's just a matter of, you know, when you play cricket in, in WA, you're probably focusing on your batting and that sort of thing. And then if you're, you know, a bigger athletic kind of looking guy, um, the coaches probably probably go, you know, I reckon you could be a good fast bowler. Yeah. And um, that's ultimately what happens. Um, maybe maybe that's not necessarily the situation, but that's how I imagine it. And, um, yeah, Hardy's really good. I've um, seen a little bit of him in the Big Bash. And, um, yeah, he's performing pretty well in the uh, – 
one day cup and in the shield. Um, so yeah, um, lots of, lots of nice kind of, um, all round players, which, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of where cricket's moving towards as we kind of so, go along in terms of developing domestic talent, having players that can, you know, bat at eight, but still bat really well, you know, those Chris Wokes models type player that are, you know, ace bowlers, but also can bat pretty well. Um, I feel like that's kind of where cricket's going and um, WA are doing a great job in producing players like that. Yep. Someone I want to have a look at though is Travis Head. He is averaging just 21 for the season so far. Um, 107 runs, top score of 76. So he's played six innings, but uh, 76 of those 107 runs came in the single innings. Um, He's trying to push for that test spot. You know, he, he is the incumbent there. There's no doubt about it, but there's other players coming up um, that look really good. They haven't necessarily hit runs. Peter Hanscom's the guy, though. He's uh, he's smashing it, really. You know, he's, what has he got? 518 runs for the season, high score of 281, averaging 173. A little bit of pressure on Travis Head at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. And that kind of um, draws me back to the point you made about the uh, captains, that sort of thing. Travis Head is seen as having a leadership role in the Australian international team in ODIs and kind of developing in um, test as well. Um, so at that point, I don't know if he's getting two in his head, seeing the performances of the other players or that sort of thing. Um, but someone probably needs to, you know, step aside and just chat to him and go, you're an excellent player. You're really, really good. There's just a slump in form. These things happen. Just, you know, take each ball on its merits. Just um, see what you don't try not to do too much out there. Cause I think that's been, a bit of what he's been doing, trying to do too much. And um, yeah, just play your natural game and it'll come. So I don't think there's pressure in so much um, from any external factors. It's mostly just within himself. And I think he'll get out of it ultimately. Yeah, no, I I think he'll get those first two tests against the West Indies and then there'll be questions after that. Um, If he makes some runs, there's no issue at all. But I'll say the same thing I say every time we talk about South Australian batters, they don't get the benefit of playing against South Australian bowlers like every other team do. So that's where the big runs are usually scored. Um, in the one-day games, WA made 326 uh, with Nessa taking five. And then Matt Renshaw made 104 in pursuit of that. But in the final over, just a few more runs to get, he was run out. And then uh, Queensland went on to lose the game. So a, a very tight one there. And then South Australia both played yesterday. South Australia won by eight runs in a, in a pretty good comeback towards the end there against New South Wales. Nathan McSweeney made 94. He's a you know spin bowling around and then half centuries to head Kerry and Thomas Kelly, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but Dan Hughes was the man, 139, uh, his eighth century for New South Wales and the most of all time for that state. Uh, you know, underrated in one day cricket, no doubt about it. But then Thornton and McSweeney took wickets late in the game to uh to seal the couple of points for South Australia. And finally, yeah, a couple, win. couple of really good games there, and um, you know, really really encouraging performances from various players. McSweeney, like you mentioned, was very impressive. Um, you know, Dan Hughes has always been always been a really solid presence in the top order of any New South Wales cricketing team. Um, so, yep, he, he just does more of what he usually does. Um, good to see Carey in the runs. Um, I think that'll be important moving forward in the summer because we're going to be seeing a lot of Carey in the summer and there's going to be a lot of talk about Carey in the summer considering, you know, the period of transition Australian cricket is in. So um, I think it's important that he, he made, he had a good performance and um, yeah. I, um, I think it's really good that the, that the one day cup has been really competitive. You know, I think it shows that, you know, we used to think about domestic cricket and think, oh yeah, you know, there's this team or that team or that sort of thing. And you just look at one team dominating, but I think this, this year it's been different this year. It's been, there's been kind of 
equivalent talent across the states, and it's been really, really good to see. Yeah, so looking at the table here, WA's on top with four wins, then South Australia with three wins, Tassie with two, Victoria and two, and Queensland and New South Wales both haven't won a game yet, having played three games. Um, so it might be something we look into a little bit deeper, but it might be because they've got so many players playing for Australia, right? You know, they develop all these players, they play for Australia and they don't get to play state cricket, especially with the World Cup on. You know, the three biggest states there, Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales, make up probably, what, 70% of the Australian population, if not more. Uh, and yet they can't seem to get to the into those final positions. Most of those teams are out now, so it's going to be between Victoria, Tassie, South Australia, and WA for the final spots, with each team only playing six games. Um, interesting one to look at there. I think, uh, I don't know, maybe New South Wales cricket is not quite as strong as it, as it used to be with having effectively a first 11 and then a second 11 that was just as strong when the Australian team got picked. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I guess a lot of that is probably... Um, mental in terms of um, if you're one of those players playing for the teams that were left behind, so to say, mm. then you'd probably f- not value yourself as highly as if you're, you know, a top order batsman for South Australia, for example, um, because not that many South Australians get selected in the international teams for whatever reason. And um, yeah, that so I, I'd say there's definitely a mental aspect to it. Um, but, you know, they've, they've, both Queensland and New South Wales have shown resolute performances in close losses. So I don't think they'll be too disheartened. And um, I think in terms of the development system, there is probably something there to look at, but, you know, there's a lot of like top quality first grade cricket being played in all those States. So I don't think they need to be too worried in terms of, in terms of quality of talent. I think they just need to maybe look at their selecting and look at what they what they want to change and um, how they want to want to implement their uh, their systems and their development going forward. Yeah, I think like some of these states are just lucky, right? If you look at this WA team that played yesterday, we got Philippi Short, Bancroft, Inglis, Turner, Cartwright, Hardy, Matt Kelly, Andrew Tyre, Cameron Gannon, and Jason Berendorf. Like uh, what is it, 10 of those 11 guys have played international cricket. Um, yeah, just lucky really and and uh, yeah. One of the that's a that could beat most international teams, I would have thought. Uh, we'll move on though to Mohammed Nabi. He's given up the Afghanistan captaincy after well, they they didn't make the finals. Um, an interesting one, right? Afghanistan, they they don't fly the new Afghanistan flag, they keep, they've kept the old one. The national anthem is still the old one. It's very much a team that doesn't represent the new Afghanistan, and uh, I think that's a good thing. Obviously, we're not going to support the Taliban, that would be quite a uh quite a take on the podcast um but yeah i think it's it's interesting and hopefully there's not too much government government interference when this uh when there's a takeover there like there was with rashid khan having to give up the captaincy yeah um i think and i hope that the afghanistan cricket board is more or less separated from the political aspects of afghanistan because yeah it's 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 distracting to to say the least. Um, and yeah, you know, um, these players all have family who are probably in danger and that sort of thing. And it's really scary to think about. And it's a really scary thing for them to have to be a part of and have to try and, you know, be this, this underdog team, this well-spirited underdog team when all that's happening politically in your home nation. Um, so, you know, I, I, I understand um, Nabi giving up the captaincy and I just hope that um, things things go okay moving forward for the Afghanistan cricket team. Absolutely. Obviously not great news there, but in some better news, DeWalt Brevis, who is a, a freak South African opening batter, um, 
I don't know, maybe better than the current opening batters. I'm not sure if Tamar Vavuma can quite do the same. Uh, he hit 162 from 57 balls in the uh, South African T20 competition. It's it's not the Indian-owned one. It's the one before that kind of a, uh, I don't know, big bash light probably. Um, there's no international players playing really. It is on TV in Australia though, which I found odd. Um, 13 sixes in that innings, including the third highest ever T20 score behind Chris Gale with his 175. And then Aaron Finch with 172. Uh, pretty impressive talent and a little bit surprising that he's not here for the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what his form was like beforehand, but yeah, if you have a player that's capable of doing that, he needs to be somewhere around your setup, doesn't he? Because, you know, it's not a name you hear too much, um, you know, in the lead up to South African teams being selected and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, I think that's good for South Africa. Good that they have this really talented opener just kind of, you know, sitting there smacking it in the South African T20 league. Um, I think the, you know, we, we've, we've had our thoughts about the Indian own South African T20 team and that sort of C20 league and that sort of thing. Um, but I think it will be really good for the exposure of younger South African players. Yeah. And it'll be really good in terms of the development of the South African international team, because oftentimes they have this international kind of group of 15 to 18 different players who will play across all the formats you know, we look at Bavuma as an example, and um, then that's kind of it. You know, you don't think about or consider anybody else. So I think that'll kind of change, and um, it'll be it'll be different to see how um, how the South African teams develop as that league develops and as um, those those domestic talents get more exposure internationally. Yeah. So he's got an IPL deal with the Mumbai Indians, um, and for me, I think South Africa need to to get him in the squads as quickly as possible. You know, they're, they're running a risk there where he could just travel around the world a bit like Tim David does and make millions of dollars in different T20 leagues. I think if you want to, if South Africa want him for the future, you really have to get him in early, make sure he's played probably all three formats. If you can hit 162 from 57, you could probably play test cricket as well. Um, you'd be talented enough. So yeah, uh, I think he's, he's got to play for South Africa sooner, sooner rather than later. And I'm, I'm sure he'll be in their uh, 2024 World Cup plans along with, you know, Tristan Stubbs and a bunch of other good young players they've got coming through. Um, another one to look at, probably not great news here, is the Wacker statues. And so three members of their board have resigned, essentially in protest of having statues of Zoe Goss, uh, the uh, women's fast bowler, and an unnamed Aboriginal cricketer. So uh, it'll be an Indigenous cricketer, um, you know, but not based on anyone, um, just kind of as a representation. So they've uh, resigned essentially not wanting that, but they, of course, wanted the Dennis Lilly statue. So, yeah, Dennis Lilly, okay. Zoe Goss, not okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad look for um, Western Australia, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah, I, I don't have much much more to say about that. I'm totally behind a Goss statue. That's fine. And I think it's good to represent um, Indigenous Australians in cricket, so I think that's a good idea too. And, um, yeah. I, I don't know enough details about the particular incident of the resignations, but um, I just think it's uh, disappointing to hear. Yeah, so essentially what they think is that either they don't deserve it or it's not a good look for WA cricket, which I don't understand. Uh, this is all part of the new, the, like the Wacker redevelopment and rebuilding that stadium. Um, I'm not sure how much of the plans you've seen, but they're planning on putting a water slide in one of the light towers down to a pool. If you can have that in a cricket ground, there's no reason you can't have two statues of, of players, and especially Zoe Goss, who's uh, probably WA's best female cricketer, at least in bowling terms. 
Um, but we'll finish on a different conversation, and that is Australian selection. Uh, and just one I wanted to posit. Are we getting a little bit, or well, not us necessarily, but just the media in general, getting a little bit too far ahead of ourselves when it comes to Australian selection? You know, this week I've seen talk about uh, Teague Wiley, who had a century a couple of weeks ago, and then Ashley Chattersinger also going to India. Um, this Indian tour, of course, is in, what, four months' time. These guys have hit one uh, Sheffield Shield century each. Not quite at the, you know, and Chadwick Singh has played one game. Like, that's how how quick he's been on the scene. Um, not quite test selection worthy as of yet, I don't think. I think as Australians, we get excited about young athletic talent. It doesn't matter if it's cricket or anything else. Um, so, you know, naturally we do get ahead of ourselves in terms of um, thinking of selection. I remember after the under 17 world cup, um, you know, people saying, Oh, I wonder when Austin war is going to get into the Australian team. And I was like, hang on a second. Don't think he plays state level yet. Um, I still don't think he has. No. So um, yeah, it's uh, you know, the media like to be jumpy and, you know, it's a good way to get, you know clicks and interest and that sort of thing and you know it gets people excited so i understand but you yeah, know we definitely get a, get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of selection i think we sometimes do as well but it's only because we like to um you know see the sport progressing and see the team progressing and that sort of thing and new players younger players make that make it feel that way but you know if you bring them in too early and they have a hard time then you know they could have have you know issues that could get injured they could have mental health issues you know a variety of different things because you know it's too much too soon so yeah we do get ahead of ourselves um i think it's for for a for a nicer reason (laughs) um but yeah i think um sometimes you just got to let players kind of do their own thing let the various cricket organizations do their own thing in terms of who they want to select who they want to bring up who they want to develop that sort of thing and then just kind of when players like Hanscom, for example, with his really impressive averages, do performances like that, that's when you should maybe talk about selection for the Australian team and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, jumping the gun is probably not not the way to go. Yeah, the, the big standout for me is Lloyd Pope. Remember, he took eight for 35 in that under-19s game. And then South Australia played him in a bunch of first-class games. He now averages 63 with the ball and is basically unselectable. Like, you can't pick someone that's averaging 63 with the ball. It's just not how cricket works, and he's not going to be able to go to another state because that average is too high. Um, no doubt talented, but he's only 22 still, um, and his, his first-class career is effectively over. I think he's still got a contract with South Australia, but, you know, they bought uh, Ben Menenti in, so they've replaced a spinner. They've also let Adam Zampa go. Um, there's, uh, there's other spinners around in South Australia that have played in front of Pope, um, effectively ruining his career. So we've got to... Yeah, just, just calm down a little bit. Um, we don't need to see a new person in the baggy green every game. Um, that They will play. Just give them some time to hit some runs. Uh, yeah, even even like you could argue Cameron Green was selected too early, right? Still hasn't hit 100. He's played, what, two years now. Probably uh, not quite met expectations. Uh, but I think uh, this year there'll be no doubt that I think he's probably he's at the spot where he's going to do that now. But that'll wrap things up for the episode. Callum, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Callum underscore Logie. Perfect to go there for all the basketball coverage um, for the cricket stuff at the Top Edge podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you give the podcast a follow, give it a rating and a review. And if you're from Germany, once again, write in because I want to know what you're listening to, Um, especially if you don't speak English. That would be even more interesting. 
Uh, that'll do us for the week. We'll be back next week with, I guess, a wrap-up of the T20 World Cup final. That'll all be finished by next week, so we'll see you then.